This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The member may know that uh, we are in the process of doing a copyright, the uh, five-year legislative review of copyright. Uh, And let me tell you, Mr. Speaker, when we set out to do this task, we laid out a, a format that would ensure that we heard from all the different segments. We heard from uh, uh, education, we heard from uh, artists, we heard from writers, creators, we heard from producers, singers, songwriters, from uh, 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 lawyers and academics. Uh, And in short, Mr. Speaker, uh, we have gone through about 180 witnesses. We've done a road trip so far, and we will be wrapping up our study uh, by the end of this year. Uh, there's a lot of information we've heard from both sides, uh, some anecdotal, some factual. That will be the challenge of the committee, is to source through the information and try to come up with uh, recommendations that uh, are, are well thought out and grounded in, in, in actionable items. Copyright. For those that know me well, it may have come as a surprise that it's taken until the third full episode to discuss one of Canada's most contentious digital policy matters. Copyright law and policy is seemingly unavoidable when it comes to digital policy. It has implications for creativity and culture, for education, for commerce, for how internet providers run their networks, and for how we engage with our leading trade partners. Canada's last major round of copyright reform concluded in 2012 with the passage of the Copyright Modernization Act. That reform process took many years and included a wide range of updates to the law. One of its provisions mandated a review of the law every five years, virtually assuring that lobbying for copyright reform would never really come to an end. Indeed, from almost the moment of enactment, groups began to look to the next copyright review as either the best chance to roll back changes they didn't like or introduce new changes that had been passed over. In late 2017, the government announced that the House of Commons Standing Committee on Industry, Science and Technology would lead the copyright review process. The Canadian Heritage Committee would provide some support by conducting a parallel study into remuneration models. Last year, the committee conducted dozens of hearings and heard from hundreds of witnesses, either in person or through submitted briefs. The hearings attracted occasional attention, particularly when Brian Adams visited the Heritage Committee. My proposal is that we change one word in the Copyright Act, Section 14.1, which is from 25 years after death to 25 years after assignment. In other words, allow artists to regain the rights to their work 25 years after signing a contract. I appeared toward the end of the review process on a panel that included Professor Isol John and copyright lawyers Casey Chiswick, Bob Tarantino, and Catherine Lovericks. To introduce some of the issues at hand and to provide insight into how the review process functions, as well as the concerns of members of Parliament, This episode relies on the audio recording of my committee appearance. It opens with my seven-minute opening statement and continues with several exchanges with MPs on issues such as fair use, the USMCA, Crown copyright, and anti-circumvention rules, which are often referred to as digital locks.
Uh, Michael Geist, you have seven minutes, please, sir. Well, thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Geist. I'm a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where I hold the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and I'm a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. I appear today in a personal capacity as an independent academic representing only my own views. I've been closely following the committee's work, and I have much to say about copyright reform in Canada. But given limited time, I'd like to quickly highlight five issues. Educational copying, site blocking, the so-called value gap, the impact of copyright provisions in the CUSMA, and potential reforms in support of Canada's innovation strategy. My written submission to the committee includes links to dozens of articles that I've written on these issues. First, educational copying. Notwithstanding the oft-heard claim that the 12, 2012 reforms are to blame for, the current education, for current educational practices, the reality is the current situation has little to do with the inclusion of education as a fair dealing purpose. You need not take my word for it. Access Copyright was asked in 2016 by the Copyright Board to describe the impact of the legal change. It told the Board that the legal reform did not change the effect of the law. Rather, it said it merely codified existing law as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Further, the claim of 600 million uncompensated copies, which lies at the heart of allegations of unfair copying, is the result of outdated guesswork using decades-old data and deeply suspect assumptions. The majority of the 600 million, 380 million, involve kindergarten to grade 12 copying data that goes back to 2005. The Copyright Board warned years ago that the survey data is so old that it may not be representative. The remaining $220 million comes from a York University study, much of which is as old as the K-12 data. Regardless of its age, however, extrapolating some old copying data from a single university to the entire country does not provide a credible estimate. In fact, this committee has received copious data on the state of educational copying, and I would argue it is unequivocal. The days of printed course packs have largely disappeared in favor of digital access. As universities and colleges shift to digital course management systems, the content used changes too. An access copyright study at Canadian colleges found that books comprised only 35% of the materials. Moreover, the amount of copying that occurs within these course management systems is far lower than exists with print. Perhaps most importantly, CMS allows for the incorporation of licensed e-books, open access materials, and hyperlinks to other content. At the University of Ottawa, there are now 1.4 million licensed e-books, many of which involve perpetual licenses that require no further payment and can be used for course instruction. Further, governments have invested tens of millions in open educational resources, and educational institutions still spend millions annually on transactional pay-per-use licenses, even where those schools have a collective license. What this means is that the shift away from the access copyright license is not grounded in fair dealing. Rather, it reflects the adoption of licenses that provide both access and reproduction rights. These licenses provide universities with access to content and the ability to use it in their courses. The access copyright license offers far less granting only copying rights for previously acquired materials. Therefore, efforts to force the access copyright license on educational institutions by either restricting fair dealing or implementing statutory damages reform should be rejected. 
The prospect of restricting fair dealing would represent an anti-innovation, anti-education step backwards and run counter to the experience of the past six years of increased licensing, innovation, and choice for both authors and educational users. And with respect to statutory damages, supporters argue that a massive escalation in potential statutory damage awards is needed for deterrence and to promote settlement negotiations. But there is nothing to deter. Educational institutions are investing in, li in, in licensing in record amounts, and promoting settlement negotiations amounts to little more than increasing the legal risks for students and educational institutions. Now, secondly, on site blocking. The committee's heard from several witnesses who have called for the inclusion of explicit site-blocking site provision in the Copyright Act. I believe this would be a mistake. First, the CRTC proceeding into site-blocking earlier this year led to thousands of submissions that identified serious problems with the practice, including from the UN Special, Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression, who raised freedom of expression concerns, and technical groups who cited risks of over-blocking and net neutrality violations. Second, even if there is support for site blocking, the reality is it already exists under the law, as we saw with the Google Equistec case at the Supreme Court. Third, the value gap. Two issues are not in dispute here. First, the music industry is garnering record revenues from internet streaming. And second, subscription streaming services pay more to creators than the ad-based ones. The question for the copyright review is whether Canadian copyright law has anything to do with this. The answer is no. The notion of a value gap is premised on some platforms or services taking advantage of the law to negotiate lower rates. Those rules, such as notice and takedown, do not exist under Canadian copyright laws. The committee just talked about last meeting. That helps explain why industry demands to this committee focused instead on taxpayer handouts such as new taxes on iPhones. I believe these demands should be rejected. Fourth, the impact of the new CUSMA. The copyright provisions in this trade agreement significantly alter the copyright balance. By extending the term of copyright by an additional 20 years, a reform that Canada rightly long resisted. By doing so, the agreement represents a major windfall that could result in hundreds of millions for rights holders and creates the need to recalibrate Canadian copyright law to restore the balance. Finally, there are important reforms that would help advance Canada's innovation strategy. For example, greater fair dealing flexibility, the so-called such-as approach that would make the current list of fair dealing purposes illustrative rather than exhaustive, would place Canadian innovators on a level playing field with fair use countries such as the U.S. That reform would still maintain the full fairness analysis along with the jurisprudence to minimize, existing jurisprudence to minimize uncertainty. In the alternative, an exception for informational analysis or text and data mining is desperately needed by the AI sector. Canada should also establish new exceptions for our digital lock rules, which are among the most restrictive in the world. Canadian businesses are at a disadvantage relative to the U.S., including the agriculture sector, where Canadian farmers do not have the same rights as those found in the United States. Moreover, given this government's support for open government, including its recent funding of Creative Commons licensed local news and its support for open source software, I believe the committee should recommend addressing an open government copyright barrier by removing the Crown copyright provision from the Copyright Act. After the round of opening statements, the committee hearing shifts to questions from MPs. Members of Parliament are allocated a specific amount of time for questions, and the question time slots rotate by party. 
One of the first questions I faced came from Conservative MP Dan Albus, who wanted to talk about fair use. In recent weeks, we've been hearing uh, from various witnesses favoring a change in approach in how we do copyright, moving to more an American-style fair use model. Um, I just would like to just uh, survey the group here, Mr. Chair. Uh, what, what are the benefits of, 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 of looking at an American-style uh, fair use? Uh, what should we take from that? What should we be very wary of? Any, any panelists? I'll start by providing, so reiterating again why I think it's a good idea. Uh, although I would argue not to jump in with the U.S. fair use provision, but rather to use, as I mentioned, the such as approach, turn the current fair dealing purposes into a group of illustrative purposes rather than an exhaustive list. Uh, I think that provides both the benefits of being able to rely on our existing jurisprudence as it represents an evolution of where we're at rather than starting from scratch, but I think it also makes it a far more technological neutral approach so that rather than every five years have someone come, have people coming up and saying now you need to deal with AI or now you need to deal with some other new issue that pops up, that kind of provision has the ability to uh, adapt as time goes by and we're seeing many countries uh, move in that direction. I would lastly note that what's critical as part of whether you call it fair dealing or fair use, what's important is whether or not it's fair. And so the analysis about whether or not it is fair remains unchanged, whether it's an illustrative group or an exhaustive group. That's what matters. It's, it's to take a look at what's being copied and assess whether it's fair. The purpose is really just a very small part of that overall puzzle, but yet by limiting the list, we then we lock ourselves in uh, into a particular point in time and aren't able to adapt as easily as technology changes. The USMCA, the trade deal between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, includes several provisions that will require copyright reform in Canada. Mr. Speaker, during the renewed NAFTA negotiations, Canada caved to Donald Trump's demand to extend copyright from life plus 50 years to life plus 70 years. A Saguenay citizen, Mr. Jean-Marie Tremblay, created a collection, collection of more than 7,000 works over the past 25 years. This change now will have made a major impact on essential works for students. Is the government aware? that by letting Donald Trump rewrite our laws, our education system is the one that will pay the price? Liberal MP Selena Caesar Chavon turned to the issue, pointing to the mandated copyright term extension in the USMCA and asking how the harm might be mitigated. Mr. Geist, you talked about um, uh, the, the recalibrate or the windfall that would be created with the life plus 70. How do you recalibrate the windfall that would be created um, by the USMCA or I think more specifically can it be recalibrated within the confines of the act? That's a great question. I think there it comes down there. There's really two aspects. I would say one is there an implementation that would meet the requirements that we we have within the act uh, that would lessen some of the harm. So when Mr. Chizik says it's, all, it's about a company making a decision whether or not to invest in a book. That's perhaps fine for any books that start getting write, get, get written once we have term today. But this will capture all sorts of works that haven't entered into the public domain yet uh, that are now going to have that additional 20 years where uh, they already made a decision and now get that windfall. 
we ought to consider is there the possibility of putting in some sort of registration requirement for the additional 20 years so that, as Professor Jandreau noted, there's a small number of works that might have economic value. Those people will go ahead and register those for that extra 20 years because they see value, but for the vast majority of other works, they would fall into the public domain. Moreover, when we're thinking about broader reforms and you sort of getting into that balance, recognize that the scale's already been tipped. And I think that has to have an impact on the kind of recommendations and ultimately reforms that we have if one of our biggest reforms has already been decided for us. Crown copyright reflects a centuries-old perspective that the government ought to control the public's ability to use official documents. Today, Crown copyright extends for 50 years from creation and it requires anyone who wants to use or republish a government report, parliamentary hearing, or other work to first seek permission. The committee has heard from many witnesses who have called for its abolition. I engaged in a back and forth on the issue with Conservative MP Dane Lloyd. Uh, Mr. Geist, um, maybe you, you could comment on that briefly, but I wanted you, you were talking about repealing Crown copyright or amending Crown copyright provisions, and I was hoping maybe you could elaborate on what the application of Crown copyright is, because it's something that has been talked about at committee, but never really fully, um, you know, done out, and then talk about, you know, the impact of uh, how we can improve things by getting rid of it, possibly. Sure. So I'll, I'll touch on Crown copyright in just a sec. I just did want to pick up on this reversion issue. I mean, it does seem to me that the U.S. is a market where there's a, quite a lot of investment taking place um, in the sector without concerns about the way their systems worked that has given rights back to the author. And the idea that, that creators, when you, you asked earlier about uh, how do individual creators handle enforcement issues, the notion that we should take an approach that says you ought to handle everything. You ought to be able to negotiate every single right with large record company or large publisher really, I think, leaves them um, without much power. If there's a consistency with Professor Jandreau's comments about perhaps part of the problem is the agreement between authors and publishers as we move into the digital world, and your question about what Brian Adams is doing, it's that we're in a sense looking at the wrong place. Much of the problem exists between creators and the intermediaries that help facilitate the creation and bring those products to market, the publishers and the record labels and the like, where there is a significant power imbalance, and these are attempts to try to remedy that. With respect to Crown Copyright, I served on the board of Canley, the Canadian Legal Information Institute, uh, for many years. And what we found there was the challenge of taking legal materials, court decisions, and other government documents represented a huge problem. In fact, there were some discussions on that I saw on Twitter uh, earlier today, uh, where people were talking specifically about the challenge that an aggregator funded by lawyers across the country face in trying to ensure that the public has free and open access to the law represents a really significant problem. Part of this is, I think, this is typified by a Crown copyright approach where the default is the government holds this. So you've got to clear the rights. You can't try to even build on and try to commercialize some of the works that uh, government may make available. Are there any legitimate reasons to have a Crown copyright? Like, it seems like there could be some good reasons why like why it should be kept. My colleague Elizabeth Judge has written a really good, good piece that kind of traces some of the history around this. Uh, initially, I think some of the concerns were uh, to ensure that, the, that a government document could be relied upon, that it was credible and authoritative. Uh, I think that is far less of an issue today than it, that it once was. I also think that the kinds of possibilities that we had to use government works uh, doesn't exist in, didn't exist in the early days of this in the way that it does today. And so we think of the development of GPS services or other kinds of services built upon 
open government or government mm -hmm. data, the idea that we would continue to have a copyright provision that would restrict that seems really anathema to the vision of a law that's, that has kind of adapted to the current technological environment. But let's say that like the government develops something that, uh, you know, for uh, ostensibly like a, something of value to the government and that would lose its value if it were to be subject to open provisions. Do you think that there's still some legitimacy to the Crown copyright? Well, in those I would, cases, I would say two things. I mean, one, we are the government. It's mm -hmm. the public that's the, yes. the public that is funding this. One of the things that I was so excited to see um, from Treasury Board, I believe it is, just over the last few days, was uh, taking a new position on open source software, where the priority will be to use open source software uh, where where available. I mean, I think it recognizes that these are public dollars, and we ought to be doing that where we can. So too with the funding Creative Commons licensed local journalism, which is another example of that. But even if there are areas where we can say can't government profit, copyright is the wrong place to be doing it. We shouldn't be using copyright law Thank to you. stop that. No issue in the 2012 copyright reform process was as controversial as the inclusion of restrictive digital lock rules. The source of extensive pressure from the United States, the Canadian approach was regularly cited as inconsistent with the results of a government consultation on the issue. By the way, the concept of digital locks is part of WIPO, the international uh, treaty to which Canada has signed in order to protect Canada's intellectual property. Right, but I think you went even further than what WIPO suggested, didn't you? I mean, these are some of the most, um, the strictest uh, rules around digital locks that there are. Liberal MP David Graham raised the digital lock issue in the context of repairing farm equipment. So the reason I want to ask about all this is to tie it back to a rising movement, especially in the U.S., called Right to Repair. I'm sure you're familiar with that as well. Um, you're aware of the John Deere case. Um, and comments on that and how we can tie that into copyright to make sure that when you buy a product like this, BlackBerry, if I want to service it, that I should have that right to do that. Yes, the, the tw 2012 reforms on any circumvention rules established some of the most restrictive digital lock rules to be found anywhere in the world. Um, and even the United States, which pressured us to adopt those rules, has steadily recognized that new exceptions to it are needed. And at the very top, I noted that one area, because we just, you just saw the U.S. create a specific exception around right to repair, uh, because the agricultural sector is very concerned about their ability to repair some of the, some of the, the devices and their, their equipment that they purchase. Our farmers don't have that. And the, the deep restrictions that we have represents a significant problem. Um, and I would strongly recommend that this committee identify where some of the most restrictive areas are in those digital locks. We will still be compliant with our international obligations by building in greater flexibility there. Fair dealing and education have been the source of extensive debate as the issue dominated at many of the hearings. One issue is whether the law should be amended to include statutory damages in the education context, a change that could lead to massive liability for educational institutions. I was asked about the issue by MP Albus. Mr. Geis, you've strongly argued against extending statutory damages to access copyright, and if the worst penalty that they're allowed to seek is the amount of the original tariff, then won't educational institutions just ignore the tariff because the, the, the only penalty is them having to pay what they would to pay begin with? First off, educational institutions are not looking to infringe anything. As I've talked about, they license, now, they license more now than they ever have before. Statutory damages, by and large, are the exception rather than the rule. The way that the law typically works is you make someone whole. You don't give them multiples beyond what they've, actually, what they've lost. 
where we have statutory damages right now, it's within the copyright collective system, it's part of a quid pro quo. It's used for, uh, for groups like SOCAN because they have no, no choice but to enter into the system. And so because it's mandatory for competition-related reasons, then they have that ability to get that. Well, Access copyright can use the market, and as we've been talking about, it is now, and this I think has become so critical as we've, seen, as we've learned over these months, the different ways education groups license, it is now one of many licenses that are out there. The idea that it would specifically be entitled to massive damages strikes me as, uh, as an incredible market intervention that's unwarranted. The misplaced application of copyright law in digital locks to farm equipment clearly struck a chord with committee members. As technology moves into the world of agriculture, small farmers have faced problems when they've needed to repair or modify their equipment. Regulations are stricter, agribusiness is more consolidated, and equipment is infinitely more complicated and proprietary. Just this week, the Copyright Office decided it's now legal to investigate, modify, and hack farm equipment like tractors, with some limitations as Liberal MP Lloyd Longfield also raised concerns. Back to the, uh, the right to repair, and I also stood on the Agriculture Committee, and I was also uh, working in the innovation space in agriculture. The J1939 standard is the vehicle standard. Uh, there's an ISO standard for on-vehicle, like steering systems, the 11898, and then on the trailer for, for fertilizer spreads, for, for seeders and applicators. Uh, the ISO 11992. So how specific do we need to go so that innovators can get on tractors and do their, do their work? Um, we could work on anything but John Deere, but I knew a guy in Regina that knew how to get around the John Deere protocols as well. But people have to get around protocols and then semi-legally give you access to the equipment. How specific should the act get in terms of technology? They First off, they shouldn't have to semi-legally be able to work on their own equipment. Um, and in fact, the copyright board ought not, the copyright law ought not to be applying to these kinds of issues. One of the very early cases around this intersection between digital locks and devices involved a Burlington-based, on Burlington, Ontario-based company called Skylink that made a universal garage door remote opener. I mean, it's, it's not earth-shattering technology, but they spent years in court uh, as they were sued by another garage door opener company, Chamberlain, saying that they were breaking their digital lock in order for this universal remote to work. The idea that we apply copyright to devices in this way is where the problem lies, and, it's, and it, the origins are these 2012 reforms on digital locks. The solution is to ensure that we've got the right exceptions in there so that the law isn't applied in areas where it shouldn't be applied to begin with. The Industry Committee is now in the drafting stage of its copyright review report. That report, with recommendations that may help guide future reforms in Canada, is expected by the summer. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or follow Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe at iTunes, Google, or Spotify. The LawBites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron-Leboy. 
Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.